This is what God says to Moses in verse 5. I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You might recognize some of those phrases from today's reading. God promised to bring his people from uh, freedom from slavery, flourishing into a spacious land, and God promises to bring his people into safety from their enemies. Freedom, flourishing, and safety. And here they are in numbers. They're on the cusp of entering into this land that God had promised them. This was the land that God was going to give them as a gift of his grace, right? And Pete opened up the series um, telling us that Numbers begins with Israel setting out from Sinai with energy and hope and optimism, right? God has been faithful to his promises. He's made them a great people. He's given them the law so they could live as as his people. And he's even given them his special presence, dwelling with them always in the tabernacle, And God showed them that he was with them through the pillars of cloud and and the fire. And in response to God's sovereign grace and his promises, their right response was to trust him and obey his commands along the way. So verse 1, chapter 13, this is exactly what Moses does. He obeys God. He obeys God and he chooses 12 leaders to enter into the land and to explore the land that God is giving to his people. Jump over to verse 17. As Moses sends them into the land, he sends them with a list of questions, right? Go find out, what are the people like? What are their cities and towns like? Are they they fortified? What's the soil like? Is it fruitful land? Please bring back some samples. In verse 27, the 12 men come back with rave reviews about the land and its crops. It does flow with milk and honey, just like God said. And here's the fruit to prove it. And they point to this giant cluster of grapes that had to be carried between two men on a pole because the cluster was so big. It's one of Pete's obsessions as a child in Sunday school, which is how big these grapes were. We were talking about it earlier this week. See, for us to take hold of the promised land and to enter into this promised land that God promises his people, we've got to know what it looks like. If I can circle back to where I started, you and I all have an image of the way we think things should be. And I want to invite us this afternoon just to reflect on whether or not it's the same place that God is bringing his people into. Is the destination that your life is pointing toward shaped more by cultural values, family history, or personal desires? Or is it shaped by the story of Scripture? I wonder if our vision only includes room for us and our own. Or does our vision for the world that God is bringing about cosmic in its scope? I think our perspective on life can become so narrowed and inward-looking because of the up-and-down nature of everyday life. That's why it's so important in the Christian life to re-center our gaze on what the Bible says is our true and our promised hope. Did you know that contrary to popular opinion, the Bible doesn't end with all of us sitting on clouds 
with glowing halos above our heads, playing harps and singing songs. But the Bible doesn't end either with us becoming absorbed into some disembodied communal mass of non-attached bliss either. God's promise for his people, Israel, was to bring them into a place of freedom and flourishing and safety. And the ultimate vision of the promised land culminates in a new heavens and a new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a place free from strife and sickness and death. It's a place free of sadness and grief and pain. It's the reality that comes when Jesus returns and God lives face to face with his people, at peace with his people, where his people are at peace with one another and at peace with creation. All are flourishing together. And the Christian hope is a reality that is embodied Real people, real bodies, real lives, real relationships, all safely held under the good rule of God, our King. And for those who trust in Jesus, that's where it's all heading. But as quickly as the spies give their rave reviews about the land and its crops, the tone changes and pessimism starts to set in. Verse 28. After talking about the land and the crops, they say, but the people who live there, they're powerful. Their cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. You're reading this wondering, who are the descendants of Anak? I'm glad you asked. They were famous for two things, okay? They were famous for being giants and famous for being warriors, Um, Some ancient sources tell us that they were over nine feet tall. I would tell you how tall that is, but I don't know what the conversion is. But think really big, right? David and Goliath, big. Scary. And the land was full of Goliaths. This is what they come back to report. And Caleb speaks up in verse 30, full of confidence and trust in God, but he's quickly silenced by the pessimism of the other ten spies. We can't attack those people, they say in 31. Even the land is dangerous. It devours the weak. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And at that, whole, and at that point, the whole community of Israel in 14.1 starts to grumble. We've heard that word before. And grieve their predicament. Why is God doing this to us? If only we had just died in Egypt, that would have been better. Speaking of Egypt, we should just go back there. Let's choose someone to lead us back, right? And in the face of trials and opposition, it can be really easy for us to let pessimism set in. Because we live in an age of pessimism, right? What do you hear on the news? that we're in a cost of living crisis. We're an ecological crisis. There's a housing affordability crisis. There's wars and geopolitical instability all over the world. It'd be easy to let pessimism settle in. You know, um, just this year, a bunch of researchers, social researchers from Melbourne Uni, um, studied and surveyed over 1,200 VCE students. And they asked them, about their outlook on the future. You can probably guess where this is going, right? Um, Less than half felt optimistic about Australia's future. And only one in six 
felt optimism about the future of the world. And this is how they conclude their study. They say this, it's clear that there is a widespread sense of hopelessness felt by young people when thinking about the fate of their generation worldwide. Sure, we all have ideals that we long for, an ideal world that we wish for. And for Christians, as I've just pointed out, that's absolutely true. But it can be hard for us to see things the way that they are and maintain our hope that anything good is going to come about. How does Israel respond here when those challenges are brought to the fore? What do they say? Well, things aren't going to get any better. Let's just go back to the old life, the oppressive systems that we know. At least then we know what we're in for. See, hope-filled perseverance can get overcome by pessimism. So what do we do with that as Christians? How can we overcome pessimism and live trusting in God's promises and obeying him as he leads us on the way? I want to point to verse um, 7 in chapter 14. Caleb and Joshua speak up again in the presence of all of Israel. This is what they say. The land that we pass through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. The Lord is with us. What are they calling Israel to do? Two things. Trust in God's promises and obey his commands. They're calling Israel to look back at the promises of God. Remember, he's fulfilled his promises. He's made us a great people. He's leading us into an exceedingly good land. You said it yourselves, ten spies, you know. It's flowing with milk and honey. Look at the grapes. And they're pointing to his faithfulness. He's led us out of Egypt and his presence with them. He is with us. They call all of Israel to see the enemies through God's eyes. If God is with his people, who could stand against them? And so how can we as God's people be be confident today in God's promises and his power, just like Caleb and Joshua? I think it's by heeding their call, by remembering God's promises fulfilled, by remembering that his presence is with us. You know, at the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises Israel that God would raise up another leader, a better leader, who would lead God's people into the eternal promised land. And Jesus is that leader. He fulfilled the promise that God would always be with his people. He came and he took on human flesh in Jesus. He walked in the wilderness, walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He was devoured at the cross by the enemies of sin and evil and death to set his people free from their tyranny. And Jesus was raised from the grave, right? Like the, first, um, like the grapes that the spies returned with, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of God's promises for his people. Jesus' resurrection is a taste of what's to come. His resurrection is the assurance that a new era has come and will fully come when he returns. And that's what Christians believe, 
We actually believe that he was raised historically, bodily, and that by God's spirit, his life is given to us. And we experience a foretaste of God's promised land day in and day out. We experience it when we are daily transformed by the work of God's spirit to become more like Jesus. We experience the first fruits of God's new kingdom as peace and joy and hope in Jesus comes, even in spite of external circumstances. And family, we have a foretaste of God's promised land as we see people become Christians and go from death to life in Christ. We taste the promised land as we work for justice, as we welcome the stranger, as we meet the needs of our neighbours. We get a foretaste of the world that is coming. And so today, family, I just want to call us simply, Christians, look to, remember our resurrected Saviour. Worship him, be filled with confidence, knowing that he is alive, that he is with us. Let him fill you with confidence as you enjoy the first fruits of our life in Christ. And because Jesus has gone before us into the land of promise, he is able to bring us there. So let's walk in obedience together, trusting his promises to bring history to his glorious end. Let me pray for us. God of all, we give you thanks for your great power and for your faithfulness. We thank you that we do not worship or follow or have fellowship with a dead saviour, but that our saviour Jesus is alive, that he is the first fruits of the new creation, of your new promised land that you are bringing us into. So I pray for us as a spiritual family that we would be filled with confidence and courage day in and day out, May we experience the resurrected life of Jesus at work in us through your Holy Spirit. And may we, your people, and may Inner West, your church, be an outpost of this kingdom. That the peace and the hope and the confidence and the justice of your new world would be manifested in and through us, your people. We submit ourselves to you. We thank you for your grace. And we want to follow you in the way that you would lead us. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.